All right, we are in uh, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16, verses 19 through 31 tonight. The, uh, the uh, parable of the rich man of Lazarus on page uh, 1224. If you want to grab one of the few Bibles and follow along, you're welcome to. Uh, but let's read the text before we get into this. It says, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen. And I'll stop there because this is just one of my favorite little parts of the Greek here. That fine linen is, is a reference to a certain kind of Egyptian linen, which basically means uh, fancy underwear. Just thought you should know that. Uh, there was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate lay a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who longed to, be satis- to satisfy his hunger with what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs would come and lick his sores. The poor man died and was carried away by the angels to be with Abraham. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was being tormented, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. He called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham said, child, remember that during your lifetime you received good things and Lazarus in like manner evil things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. Besides all this, Between you and us is a great chasm that has been fixed, so those who might want to pass from here to you cannot do so, and no one can cross from there to us. He said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, that he may warn them, so they will not also come to this place of torment. And Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, they should listen to them. He said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. For the word of God in Scripture, for the word of God among us, for the word of God within us, thanks be to God. Not a parable you read to the kids before they go to bed at night, probably. Tonight's parable, though, is to me a very fascinating one. It's the last of five parables uh, that Luke has put together here. And uh, it, is, it is a tough one. And as fascinating and challenging as it is, I think the quickest way to make this parable pointless is to take it literally instead of taking it seriously. Don't try to make this parable do something it isn't intended or able to do, right? This is not a diagram of the cosmos. Some of you, as I was reading that, were trying to figure out, wait, how does Hades in the bosom of Abraham work exactly? They can see each other and talk, and what's going on here? It's not about the nature and geography of heaven and hell, or rather Abraham's bosom and Hades, which is a whole other conversation, the differences and what those mean. It's not intended to be a descriptive uh, of the future reality, as much of instructive to our lives today. To focus on the blueprints of heaven and hell in this parable would be tantamount to getting hung up on the color of the curtains in the house of the prodigal son. It doesn't matter. That's not what this is here for. These last five consecutive parables that Luke has laid out in rapid succession, they're all about what we value. They're all about what we celebrate. And this final parable, I think, hits the hardest because as tough as some of the other ones are, they all end in a party but not so much here. But I'll be honest with you, the scripture's also a bit of a preacher's dream. If my goal is to motivate 
Direct threats of eternal suffering are pretty darn effective on average. And none of you pew sitters are safe here. Right? Historically speaking, everyone in this room, simply by living when and where we do, can qualify as comparatively wealthy. Now, you may look around the room and not feel totally wealthy with the uh, you know, famous professors and televangelists that are here, but we wouldn't have to draw the circle very far to realize that globally and historically speaking, wealthy, we all qualify. And I'd be willing to bet that some of you, like me, already have small amounts of guilt for what you do have. So you are ripe for preacherly manipulation right now. And maybe it's time to get our budget in order. So I would like to name tonight's sermon, Tithe or Die, Your Choice. <laughs> not true. I actually would like to start, believe it or not, by letting you off the hook a little bit uh, before we get too deep into this. Now, I don't want to sidestep the impact of this important parable. It is a heavy hitter, and we're not going to sidestep it. There is judgment in this parable that we need to pay close attention to. But I also think there's something pretty important for us to recognize, at least it has been for me to recognize, and that is that we live in a very different world than the one to which Jesus is speaking originally. They're not completely divorced. It doesn't mean that there aren't lessons that, that translate or we shouldn't listen to this parable, what it has to say, but it's worth considering what I believe is a somewhat impossible position we find ourselves in in our modern world. I want us to compare, think about and compare the relative sizes, quote-unquote, of the world for us and for those originally hearing Jesus' words. I mean, for them, this is an ancient world. Uh, in, in ancient Palestine, if someone really wanted to get out there and see the world, they might be able to cover 20 miles in a good day. It is not hard to imagine that in a world which is with as much poverty and that was dependent on things like you know, farming and attending to animals, that many, many people probably never saw anything more than maybe 100 miles from their house. You might hear stories from faraway places, but half the time, by the time that news got to you, it was already history. The world, in that sense, was a very big place. Kids, they had no internet. I don't know if you know that or not. They had no internet, no email. They didn't even have newspaper. There was no printing press yet. The world was very large. Entire civilizations could come and go without other people even knowing that they were ever there somewhere else on this big globe. Other people's worlds crumbled around them without anyone having the ability to understand or know that it had happened. We have some of that now, but our world is so much smaller, right? I mean, right now, news outlets all over the country are talking about the water quality in Jackson, Mississippi. This week alone, I've watched personal videos of Russian men's tearful goodbyes to their families after being drafted into a war they wanted nothing to do with. I've also seen the carnage of bombs that that same military that drafted those men, uh, the carnage that is left after they unjustly dropped bombs on innocent Ukrainians. I've read a little bit about concentration camps for Uyghur Muslims being corralled in China against their will. We've seen people desperate from storms and, and from natural disasters in Pakistan or Puerto Rico and watched people struggle who don't even have water or shelter. I can go on and on and on, right? I can go online and read detailed accounts of catastrophic human suffering in any remote corner of the world. 
I can do that anytime I want if I haven't seen enough just making my way through a normal day. This is that small world that we have built for ourselves. There are some positives to it, but that part is hard to take. It's a new historical phenomenon, I think, for humanity, and I'm not convinced we're actually equipped to handle it. All of that to say that if you, when beginning to consider the problems of this world, if you begin to feel powerless to help the overwhelming problems of this world, I think it's probably because largely you are powerless to help the overwhelming problems in this world. You don't have the ability to do anything about it. Our ability to know about others' pain far outpaces our power to do something about it. I believe compassion fatigue is a very real thing. I've experienced it. I'm sure you have too. We're not capable of caring for everyone and everything all at once. It's just too much for one person. I think we got a close-up look on how this process works in the last couple of years during the pandemic, right? Now, there were a small group of people who were never motivated to act in any way that was selfless. Set them aside. Most of us started off very deeply concerned for everyone, even those we didn't know. Anyone who might be in harm's way. Everyone was making sacrifices. We were looking out for other people. We began to honor those who were on the front lines. We we were making heroes, rightfully so, out of the doctors and nurses and essential staff that were still making the world run while everything was shutting down. But we just can't maintain that level of compassion, can we? For everyone, all the time, right? Even the most selfless at some point began to realize they can't hold everyone's struggle at once. And so maybe we just watched news a little less. Maybe I kept an eye on the statistics once every few days instead of every day, read a few less articles, thought about it a little less. And eventually for me, that was a process, and I'm not endorsing this or saying it was a good thing, but eventually for me, I just mostly began to shrink my world and begin to take a look at what was happening right around me. How are our hospitals doing, right? How are our ERs doing? What are our numbers look like here? I felt like I had to shrink my world in order to still hold a deep concern for it. And then the shots came, and there's a part of me that just was like, all right, every man for himself. Again, I'm not endorsing, I'm not saying it's right, but that's kind of where I was at. I don't think uh, that just illustrates something that might be wrong about me, but I think it illustrates something about our capacity for compassion. We have limits. We get tired, it gets overwhelming. And eventually we start drawing that circle a little tighter and a little tighter if we don't want to lose compassion altogether. In fact, I believe one of the fastest routes to not caring deeply for anyone is to try and care deeply for everyone at once. God has a capacity to love the world, but you and I do not. So I want to give you some permission on the front end of this parable uh, because otherwise I think it can overwhelm you like it has me in the past. I want to remind you that there is a God and it is not you. If there is suffering in this world, you will never have the capacity to carry. And that's okay. It's the nature of who we are. Doesn't mean that we can be callous to it, but you can't carry it all. Even if we do, we can't carry it all, even if we do live in a world that makes us privy to it all. So there's a little grace on the front end. 
With that said, you need to have your steel toe boots for this parable, right? With that said, our parable today leaves very little room for comfort when it comes to those who are suffering outside of our own gates. This unnamed rich man, which is important that the rich man is unnamed and Lazarus has a name. The unnamed rich man in this parable is living out the dream we all have, if we're honest, on some level. He has wealth. He has the means to do what he wants, when he wants, and so he does. Who doesn't want that? I do. Sign me up for that job. He's wearing the best. He's got fancy underwear. He's eating the finest as much as he wants. Like he's living in a world of his creation. He uses his wealth to do what all of us want to use our money to do, which is insulate ourselves from the messiness and suffering in the world that I don't have to be a part of. He builds a wall. No political jokes. But a wall is what makes us feel safe and special and set apart because it literally makes us safe and sets us apart. And the rich man no longer has to look at Lazarus, no longer has to look at his sores or hear his pain. And who wants that, right? Who wants to feel bad like that? Who wants to see that and feel as vulnerable and finite as it makes me feel to see someone else in that condition? There is little as disturbing as seeing someone else as frail as you know you may, may one day be. Part of what it means, again, to be blessed with wealth is to be blessed with the ability to shut out all that stuff. But then we see something happen here. We see something that we see a lot in Scripture, which is God's judgment comes to this rich man in one of the most unexpected forms. The rich man is judged by getting what he wants. Separation from Lazarus. Doesn't want to see him, doesn't want to deal with him. Unfortunately for the rich man, in eternity, Lazarus is on the good side of the wall that the rich man built. Jesus pulls no punches in this story because the rich man has no excuses. Every day, Lazarus is just outside his gate, the gate that the rich man built. The rich man knows his name. He knows him. He knows his suffering. The rich man can do something about it. All Lazarus wants is the scraps from his table, but he can't even get those. What Lazarus needs is well within the rich man's ability to provide. He's in proximity to him. There's no reason he can't help him. But the rich man's values are so distorted that his fancy underwear is more important than his hurting brother. And that's supposed to sound as absurd as it does. And we can't call that anything other than what it is. Sin. Our comfort can never be more important than our compassion. Again, I think a fair definition of wealth would be having the means to insulate yourself from avoidable suffering. The ability to ensure that you don't have to see, smell, or be saddened by anything you'd rather ignore. Your wealth lies in your ability to avoid those that you could uplift. But your wealth doesn't have to be spent as such. You can't hold all the world's weight. But you cannot ignore the one God's place before you. 
This, according to the scripture, is how hell is built. So please don't try to hold it all. But just because you can't fix the entire world doesn't mean you get to ignore your neighbor suffering in front of you. I'll close with a story that many of you, or maybe most of you, have heard. Preachers have told it a lot. It's kind of famous. But I think it fits well. My understanding is this story comes from when someone was interviewing Mother Teresa. And they asked her how she keeps going every day into the slums of India and working with the masses of people that were suffering such, so immensely. How could she keep going and helping those people when she could never really fix the problem? She could never alleviate, alleviate all the suffering. And she told a story. And the story was that a man was walking on a beach that was covered with starfish, just covered with starfish that had been washed ashore. Too many starfish to count lay dying slowly in the sun. And as the man walked among them, he sees a little old lady pick up a starfish and throw it in the water. And then go and pick up another one and throw it in the water too. And he finally walks up to her and he says, ma'am, why are you doing that? There's no way you can get them all. What does it even matter? And as she threw the next starfish, she said, it matters to that one. And the next one matters to that one. Next one matters to that one. This is the grace the rich man refuses. And in the face of, of enormous human suffering, we have to have the faith of the old woman on the beach. May we remember that we should do something about what we can do something about, even when we give, our grace the, give ourselves the grace not to try to fix it all. So may we never get our wish to be separated May we never get our wish to be separated from the one God calls us to love. And may our wealth be spent on longer tables and not thicker walls. We are told in Scripture that hell's own gates will not be able to resist God's kingdom of love. May our gates uh, meet the same fate. Let's pray. God, we are... So grateful for your love. We are so grateful for the fact that your grace and your help and your peace and your love was available to us whether we deserved it or not. That even our most vulnerable and broken parts of who we are, that your love moved towards us and not away. That you are an incarnate God, that you did not build a wall between you and ourselves, but Lord, you came and you dwelt among us. Thank you for being a God who is with us. May we be a people whose love moves the same direction. God, may we have the grace needed for ourselves to recognize that we cannot fix this entire world, that we cannot hold all the world's brokenness within ourselves. But Lord, may we not use that as an excuse to ignore the ones you put in front of us. May our gates be open and may our hearts love fully. God, we do love you and we ask all these things in your name. Amen.